Burlington on the spot. Today we have Kevin Stansberry. Thanks a lot for coming in. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a little bit of a drive, so I appreciate you making time to come down. Um, I thought we'd start out today by just going over a little of your background and your history and telling okay. us how you ended up out here as CEO of Lincoln Health. Okay. So uh, I've been in healthcare for 35 years. I've worked primarily in community hospitals across the country. Um, spent a good share of my career in Cheyenne, Wyoming. It started out at the Catholic Hospital in, in Cheyenne, DePaul Hospital, and then we put the two hospitals in town together and created one hospital. Um, from there, I went to Carson City, Nevada. And in, in Carson City, that was kind of an interesting story. I, that's, uh, they were building a brand new hospital, and I got hired to help them build this new hospital. Um, so we, we completed the project, and I really loved that part of the business and um, started looking for other work. And we got, my wife and I got contacted by a company out of Michigan to build and run a hospital in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. And so we went to Bangladesh to help them get started on the, on the, um, on the hospital. And that, that didn't work out, but it shows how things progress. When I got back from Bangladesh, I, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, if you want to build hospitals, um, because the story is sorry for that, um, I was in a taxi cab in uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh, and there was an architect in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. And we, we were traveling together, and he started talking about this fellow that I knew also. So we, we exchanged uh, uh, good thoughts about this gentleman. And, and when I got back, this fellow called me and said, hey, I'm, that's what he did. He built hospitals, and we'd love to hire somebody like you. So I went to work for them for about 10 years where I just traveled around the country uh, building hospitals in, in the United States. Um, when the economic downturn hit, uh, our business dropped a lot, and uh, I was then hired by my last client in Butler, Pennsylvania. And my wife and I moved to Pittsburgh, just north of Pittsburgh, and um, really loved the community and loved the area, and we worked there for about five years, and uh, toward the end of my time there, my older brother passed away suddenly. He was 58 years old, and he died of a aneurysm, died at his desk, and um, that really caused me to start thinking that, you know, wow, life is too short. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to work for another small company, and we built hospitals around the world, and I did work in Vietnam, and I did work in Nigeria and Ethiopia. Um, we, we had a contract to rebuild the healthcare system in Libya. So we were doing all of this really interesting international work. And I had always promised my wife that we would, I would never put her at risk for anything. Right. And um, the last trip I made um, to Africa, I was in Nigeria, and we were surrounded by armed guards the whole time. Holy smokes. And so it was like, ah, this isn't much fun. Um, shortly after that, I... We had another opportunity in Vietnam, and I uh, went to Vietnam, and we actually were planning to move to Vietnam when I was contacted by the folks that were looking for the CEO at Lincoln Community Hospital in Hugo. And I, I was at home in the United States when I got the email, 
And I showed it to my wife, and she said, well, your grandson lives 90 minutes from there. Maybe that's a better job to take than the job in Saigon, which <laughs> is where we were going to go. And so I, I um, was traveling in Saigon, and uh, I actually had my first interview for the job from Saigon. We did it by Skype. And um, when I got back to the States, we came out here. And my wife and I just fell in love with the area. We, we, we are from, uh, she grew, was born and raised in western Nebraska, and I was born in eastern Wyoming. So okay, this is all just us. Yeah, uh, you're used to this. Yeah, so we fell in love with it. Um, now we, all six of our grandkids live within 90 minutes of us. So oh, that's awesome. That's great. And we love the community. We love eastern Colorado. It's just really, really worked out. So that's no, that's, that's my professional yeah. background. And uh, I told you I was gonna before we started sh- shooting. I told you I had a question because yeah. I was looking LinkedIn, checking it out. I had, first of all, I had no idea that you had been all around the world trying to build hospitals. Yeah. I mean, that so it's been a passion since you were what, like a, a little kid, or well, I mean, j- yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, because that you, you know, yeah, we 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 did that. Uh, that that is because you make such a huge difference. So. First time I traveled to Vietnam, um, we were consulting on a cancer hospital, and they were struggling with their infectious rates. And so we were talking to the hospital director. Their their physicians are generally well-trained. They're generally Western-trained. But they were trying to figure out why their infection rate was so high. So we said, okay, well, let's take a look at it. And and he said, you know, we have semi-private beds. And we said, well, that's pretty common. We don't think that should be a problem. Well, when they met seven semi-private beds, they were putting two patients in a bed oh. uh, because they were so overwhelmed. And, right. of course, you can imagine that that caused a lot of infections. So just some yeah. simple stuff about that. You make a huge difference with just making simple simple observations and, and asking folks to do things just a little bit differently. Trying to make a difference. That's yep. where that stems exactly. from. And then I saw you went to the University of Wyoming. Yes. And then, so were you, you were studying healthcare then at that time? Or? Yeah, so I, I graduated from the University of Wyoming in 1981 with a degree in actually personnel administration. Okay. And then I went to work at DePaul Hospital in Cheyenne as their director of human resources. Okay. I went to CSU. So Did I'm, you really? Yeah, so I'm familiar okay. with that. Uh, I brought my <laughs> Wyoming... Oh, are we going to put some Wyoming stuff on here? Okay, and I'll put on my Rams mask. So we'll just remind you that you guys have had our number four years. Yeah, you guys have had our number the last football, but basketball, you have kicked our heinies. Yeah, that program was doing a little bit better. But so then I saw you actually went back, right? And you got your law degree. Yeah. So uh, when I was working for the hospital in Cheyenne, they asked me to go to law school, and um, so I went to law school at the University of Wyoming, and then. Again, worked at that hospital in Cheyenne for several years after that. Wow. So you're bringing so much experience and knowledge then to to this role. I mean, because it's administration, but it's also traveling all over the world, seeing what it's like to try and start a hospital and take care of patients. Uh, so going into COVID, I mean, that's probably the most pressing thing right now, you know, as far as, as, far as what's been happening over the last six months, right? Yeah. So COVID is a very unique challenge for our healthcare system in general, but in particular for rural hospitals. Rural hospital, like our hospital in Hugo, like your very fine hospital here in Burlington, you know, we we all offer a broad range of services to take care of the communities that we serve, but we don't have a lot of resources. Um, 
in Colorado, for example, in the uh, it's probably this data is probably two years old, but two years ago, hospitals in the city were making an average bottom line of about fourteen to fifteen percent. Large hospitals in the resort areas and in the larger rural areas were making a bottom line of about twelve percent. Small critical access hospitals like our hospital here in Burlington, our hospital in Hugo. Cheyenne Wells, Eads, Ray, Yuma, the average bottom line for those hospitals is a loss of 1%. So we struggle to maintain the services to make sure we're taking care of the communities that we serve, but we're operating under huge financial stress at the same time. But we're also held to the same standards. So the care that you get here in Burlington or in Hugo or Cheyenne Wells or Eads or wherever you're going to get the same standard of care in those hospitals as you would get in the larger hospitals. We don't do everything. Right. You know, I, I was just meeting with um, your hospital CEO, Darcy. Um, we're never going to do open-heart surgeries, for example, at either of our hospitals. That's ridiculous to even right. think of that. But there are plenty of things that we can do and do safely. And none of us want to do any care that's pretty good for a rural hospital. We want to do care that's pretty good, period. Okay. And that's, that's the mission that we have. And it's, it's exacerbated by the financial challenges. So when COVID comes along, we see the cost of our supplies increase dramatically. So personal protective equipment like right. masks and gloves and gowns, the prices of those have accelerated dramatically. Our, our CFO told me last week we're paying five times for a mask what we did just six months ago. That makes no sense. Well, I don't. I mean, supply and demand. Yeah, right. But I thought we ramped up the supply. Right. Well, when, I mean, once we saw this happening, all you see, you hear stories of all the companies jumping in, like GM making ventilators and stuff. I mean, the the prices. It's an opportunity. Okay. Uh, so many hospitals, especially the smaller hospitals, are on what's called an allocation. So we can order whatever we want, but they're only going to give us what they give us. Gotcha. And and we we end up paying a premium for that. So. It is a challenge right now. Um, we are fortunate that we've had limited numbers of COVID cases so right. far in the rural areas, but I really believe it's coming. Okay. And we have to be prepared for that. So we're maintaining our staffing. We're making sure we have the appropriate supplies and equipment on board. And we'll be able to take care of patients. If they get real sick, of course, then we have to transfer them into the city. But we'll be able to take care of a lot of the patients here in the rural areas. So do you think it's uh, the season changing where you're thinking that that's why you said you, you see it's coming or what makes you believe that? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of things. If you listen to the national experts, it's um, first of all, the uh, return to school. There's concerns about increased infection as a result of that. The colder weather, as you mentioned, will drive people inside. So yeah, we're, we're more than likely going to be... Uh, potentially infecting people more. And then that's combined with what's expected to be an, at least a normal flu season, right? which will increase people's um, possibility of, of getting sick with COVID as well. So a multitude of factors. Yeah. Okay. And to prepare for this, I had a chance to go in and look at the interview you did on, uh, it was, I think, four months ago, April 2nd, maybe on Fox, okay. where they interviewed rural hospitals. Yep. And so that was a great interview. Part of what you said on that was we would be ready if COVID overran the big cities. Yeah. We would be an option for elective surgeries, 
right? And so how has that worked out? I mean, or has it just been horrible, right? That we can't do elective surgeries out here. So that's hurt the bottom line even more. And has it just, was that like a confluence of of negative factors hitting at once or? Yeah. So a number of things happened. Uh, First of all, rural hospitals were exempted from the the elective surgery issue, but a lot of patients said, I'm not going there. I don't want to get sick. Uh. And so we saw all of us, and, and I'll speak to who I mean by all of us here shortly, but we saw reductions in our clinic volume and our, on our procedure volume by 40 or 50%. And so we're already operating on at a very thin, possibly negative margin. And then we get hit with a, a real reduction in the procedures that we're doing. That hurt bad. What we, and we is the Eastern Plains Health Consortium, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Perfect. That's a group of nine hospitals on the Eastern Plains. We approached the city hospitals and said, hey, Stop building these, uh, investing this money. There's a large uh, facility up in Longmont at the ranch, at the uh, convention center, and then there's one on the, on the western slope where the state, and I, and I think it's, it's not inappropriate that they did this. They're preparing for the potential disaster that might hit. But our argument was always use the rural hospitals first. Mm. We can take those patients. We can care for those patients safely. And then we'll send them back to the city rather than using these these uh, emergency tent hospitals, basically, mm-hmm. while the rural hospitals sit empty. So uh, several of us approached the governor's office as well as some of the bigger systems in the, in the state. And, for example, in Hugo, we had patients come to us from Greeley, for example, who were recovered. They were no longer positive, but they still hadn't. They still weren't ready to go home or ready to go to their nursing home. So we took them and got them better and then sent them home from there. And that's a model we think that we can continue to do through the fall. So has that helped bridge that gap then financially over the last four or five months? It has. It it certainly has. Um, it, It doesn't make up for all of it, but it helps to contribute to some of it. And that's, you know, our motto in Lincoln is neighbors caring for neighbors. Right. And so we felt that that was our duty. The, the, our partners in the city were being overrun uh, in the spring where they were, you know, the hospital in Greeley was completely full. Their ICU was full. Mm. They had nowhere to put these patients that were no longer critical. They just needed, you know, rehabilitative care to get them back to where they could go home and live independently. And that was us taking care of our neighbors in, in Greeley, for example. So we, we accepted those patients. We accepted patients from the city, as did some of the other hospitals in the Eastern Plains Consortium. So which hospitals are in the consortium? Is Greeley one of those? or? Yeah, so we have nine hospitals that are critical access hospitals. So working from the south and going north, uh, Wisebroad down in Eads, um, Keefe Memorial Hospital in Cheyenne Wells, uh, Kit Carson Memorial Hospital here in Burlington, the hospital in Ray and Yuma, hospital in Holyoke and Haxton, and then the hospital up in Julesburg, okay. uh, as well as Lincoln Community. And then we do have Banner Health is a partner of ours. They're on the they're in the consortium, um, and then they're just part of us. And 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 our goal is to just share resources, um, mainly knowledge. You know, how okay. are you dealing with this problem? What are ways that we can work together to solve that problem? So, for example, when the COVID thing hit, we had a, uh, we set up a single number where the city hospitals could call one number. 
And then we had a case manager staffing that number, and then she would work with the other hospitals in the consortium to see who had beds or who had capability to take care of those mm-hmm. patients. So it's that kind of, of sharing that we try to do. Uh, our primary goal is to improve quality across all of our hospitals and then also to reduce costs. Um, so, for example, one of the things we're doing that's growing out of the COVID is we've initiated a staff sharing uh, program. So if one of my nurses is uh, wanting some extra hours, but she's, she's only working 40 hours a week for us, and, but she wants to work some more, and we won't let her because of overtime or the whatever, she could pick up other shifts at some of these other hospitals where she goes there. She's already been oriented to them. She's already been trained. We do enough the same. That's very easy for her to go to work there and help them out and cover some shifts for them. Well, wow, that's fascinating. I, I did not know that. So you guys must have really good communication. Then. I mean, yeah, we, we meet as uh, the CEOs meet on a, on a monthly basis, and then our, our financial folks meet on a regular basis, our human resource staff meet on a regular basis, and our nursing staff all meet on a regular basis. Okay. So when you look into the future with COVID right now, how, how long do you think this is going to continue to impact the healthcare system in the foreseeable? I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what, what do you think? Are we looking into like next spring or, and I guess that parlays into my question about vaccines. Yeah. I, and that, and that to me is the key is the vaccines. Um, Dr. John Fox, who's one of our physicians in Hugo, uh, really studies this problem a lot. And his concern is, if we don't get the vaccines going in order to reach the quote-unquote herd immunity, we're going to have to suffer through some horrible things. There are going to be literally hundreds of thousands of people across the country die. Uh, locally, that'll mean thousands of folks die, and it'll overwhelm the healthcare system. So he has taught me that's not the solution. Okay. We've got to get to a vaccine. Uh, if we can get a safe and reliable vaccine, and as you suggest, uh, maybe by springtime, the weather's getting warmer, maybe the vaccine or the virus recedes a little bit. Um, we can get folks generally vaccinated, and then we can start building that immunity without folks getting sick. They can do it through the vaccine. In terms of you know, its development, um, we know that the government and the administration has really committed to putting a lot of resources. They, they have at least three that I'm aware of different companies that are working independently to develop a vaccine. Um, I was on a conference call last week, two weeks ago, with the American Hospital Association. Um, Dr. Fauci was on that call, and and he, he was um, reporting that he felt by the end of the year we should have a safe and reliable vaccine that would be available for folks um, to help begin to build that immunity. The next best thing we can do is we can all wear our masks and all practice social distancing. It's not a fun thing to do. Uh, it certainly adds some stress, but right. the more we can protect ourselves and reduce that infection rate, the better. And I, and I think people in Colorado in general, and I'm very proud of our, our neighbors in eastern Colorado, mm-hmm. I think generally people are taking it very seriously and, and they're trying to protect themselves and protect their neighbors. That's going to be the secret until we can get a vaccine out. And use common sense. Yes. If you have somebody high risk in your family, use common sense. That's right. That's right. And if you suspect that you've been exposed or you suspect that you have uh, any of the symptoms, get tested. Testing is readily available. 
I, I know the hospital here in, in Burlington has the testing capabilities. Yep. Get tested and and quarantine yourself until you know for sure. Okay. And John Fox, or Dr. John Fox, right, he is shooting those videos. We're going to put a link uh, when we, this goes live. We'll put a link down there so that everyone can go to the YouTube channel and they can see those videos. And it sounds like you're you're trying to shoot those once a week. Is that what it looked like? It was a 20-minute video, very informative. Yeah, we do uh, a show every Thursday afternoon at 2.30 on Facebook Live. Okay. And, and then the videos will be posted on our YouTube channel. And it, it really covers a whole range of topics. We've talked about the basics of, you know, what is coronavirus? What is, you know, well, how does it affect you? What are some, some of the symptoms you might want to look for? How do you protect yourself against it? What are, who should you call if, you, if you're afraid you're sick? If you have questions, where do you go? And then we do a lot of just answering community questions on the, those videos. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback on them. Yeah, those are great. Um, in regards to, you had talked a little bit about working with the governor or having the governor making decisions. What are the challenges of us being out on the Eastern Plains versus having a state so big and so vast as Colorado and you have these decisions being made kind of all as one? Has that been a challenge? I mean, in regards to policy, trying to impact both the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains and more urban areas. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And because it is different everywhere. And I think that, one of the things that we've been, we being the rural hospitals and especially the, the hospitals on the Eastern Plains is be sensitive to what our needs are out here. We're not the same as if you're going to Walmart in, in Denver or Colorado Springs all the time. Right. We're going to live in a different world. So um, we still want to make sure we're wearing our masks when appropriate. We still want to make sure we're washing our hands. Still want to make sure we're practicing social distancing. But it's not the same problems if, if you're constantly surrounded by other people. Okay. And then you had mentioned about the vaccines. I had another question about that. Do you, do you worry, I, and I don't know exactly how long it takes normally to get a vaccine through. I think it might be a couple years, right? And obviously this is, this is forcing us to take unprecedented actions. Do you worry about that? I mean, the, the, it being pushed faster or next spring, or as long as we have the testing, we're going to be okay. I mean, right. what are your... I, I think that's a really legitimate concern, and okay. I know people in general have, have concerns about vaccines. Um, I happen to be somebody that really believes in vaccinations. Let's protect our kids and let's protect our, ourselves. Um, I think that the what I understand and what I've studied about it, the, the vaccines that they're developing now, they're following all the safety protocols. What they've been able to accelerate is a lot of the bureaucratic requirements and mm. a lot of the financial requirements. So essentially, you had the, the Trump administration, to their credit, said, we need to solve this problem now. They found the best companies in the world, which who happened to be based in the United States, and said, here's a bunch of money, solve this problem. And mm-hmm. so that's, a, in, in my opinion, that the, was the best way to do it, the resources available through the federal government and letting the private sector try to solve the problem. And, and they're going through their testing. And from what I understand, all of the safety testing that would normally be done for a vaccine is being done for these. They're just doing it in an accelerated way. Gotcha. Well, and what made me think about that was seeing Dr. Fox, because yep. yesterday he was talking about it and he said, hey, Russia's about to, yep. I think they're making theirs mandatory yep. for the whole population, and kind of that testing then is happening on their population is what he said, phase three. So. I, that's exactly <laughs> right. And so, and I think that's where the United States is saying, now, wait a minute, let's do this right. 
And, you know, it's an interesting question. I've had the discussion with colleagues of mine. Will the government come out and say there's going to be a mandatory vaccine? I don't see how they could do that. And right. I think that would be the wrong way to do it. Um, I, we in healthcare, for example, every year, if you're working with patients, you are required to take a flu vaccine or you can't work with patients. Will we do the same thing with COVID? I don't know. Um, but I, I, I think that once we get a vaccine out, it's going to be important for all of us to understand how safe it is and what the potential side effects might be. Um, but we are not going to solve this problem until we get the population somehow immune to this disease. And the most efficient way to do that is via vaccination. Right. Okay. And then as far as uh, the other challenges that you guys are facing economically, is there any other messages that you want to talk about? I mean, is going forward or that you want the public to know out here on the Eastern Plains? Or You know, I think, uh, and I mentioned earlier about small rural hospitals and critical access hospitals. So whether it's uh, Julesburg or Haxton or Cheyenne Wells or Lincoln, we all struggle to make money on our operations. As I mentioned earlier, we're right. averaging a loss of 1%. How we keep the doors open is the support of the community. It's tax support. We couldn't, in, at Lincoln Community Hospital, we couldn't survive without the good people of Lincoln County paying taxes. And it's the right. same way here in Kit Carson County. So that we're, we're very grateful for that tax support. We're very grateful for the community support. Um, during the time of the where, where the, the, the uh, pandemic was really starting to ramp up, we had tremendous support from the community, just people saying, hey, what do you need? Offering food or, or supplies mm -hmm. or willing to transport PPE. So um, it, it's that kind of support we need from our community because that's what we do in rural America, right? Right. You, you help your neighbor out and, and you, you take care of folks, and that's how we're going to get through this thing. Gotcha. What about uh, physicians? Is it are you see is it tough to get physicians to work out here, or do you think that maybe because you are seeing an exodus from cities? Yeah. I mean, and I don't know to what impact that's or what effect that's completely true or accurate, but New York, Chicago, I'm seeing every day people are talking about they're packing up, they're moving. Do you think that that could be a positive for out here? That there's a chance that you know. So I, I'm I'm kind of biased about that because I love living in rural. Okay, America. so you don't want it. <laughs> so no, no, no. I, I actually think it's the other way. When we when we recruited physicians to Lincoln Community Hospital a few years ago, we had um, ten physicians who we had uh, vetted out, and we thought any one of those ten would work out, and we ended up hiring nice. Dr. Brianna Fox, who's worked out great. No relation to John Fox. Okay, happens to be they share a last name. What I found in that process is there are a, a very large group of younger physicians who are looking for lifestyle and not financial reward. So they want to find a community that will welcome them. We want to, they want to find a community where they can raise their kids and it's safe. They want to find a community where they can work with patients from cradle to grave, if you will, right. and really help them manage their health. And I know you've got a couple of physicians here in Burlington who are doing just that. Um, so I, I think it's really important that when we go out to recruit physicians to rural communities, we find people that our lifestyle appeals to them um, because mm -hmm. there are doctors out there that want to live in a rural area, that want to practice good medicine. And these are really, really good doctors. Yeah. The doctors we have in Hugo and Lyman, the doctors you have here in Burlington, Cheyenne Wells, Yuma, these are all really good doctors. They just happen to live and work in a rural area. Yeah. So 
we don't have to sell our shelves short. We can get really good doctors to come to rural America. It, it's just a matter of telling our story right. We have a great story to tell. Yeah, and we need to keep getting that message out. That's right. Because it's like you said, I, if you're driving along I-70, or I, I saw this on uh, Facebook, I think, and you get in an accident, Hugo's right there. That's right. Hugo Hospital. I mean, or else you're an hour away from another hospital. We need these hospitals out here. We need this healthcare out here. That's right. And most people don't realize this. And I, I again, I share this a lot with our colleagues here in Burlington. When you leave Denver on I-70 and you get west of E-470, the only two hospitals that are on the I-70 corridor between Denver and the Kansas line are Hugo and Burlington. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So we take care of a lot of uh, trauma off the highways or agricultural trauma or um, whatever accidents might happen. We're there, and without us there, that's a long, lonely stretch of road. Yeah, it's a big deal. So, okay, well, I again, I really appreciate you coming down here. Yeah. You're an hour away and sitting down with us. I know how valuable your time is and how busy you are. Well, thank so you I really me. appreciate it, and uh, thank you, and have a good weekend. You bet. Thank okay. you. Okay. Appreciate All right. it. All right.